Welcome again. Thanks for being here with us. Today we're going to continue a series in the Gospel of John. Uh, John, one of Jesus' apostles, uh, one of his closest followers, writes a story that we might know Jesus, that we might believe in Jesus and find life in him. Now this week's text, we're in John chapter 5, flows directly out of the story that we looked at last week. So let's recap just a little bit uh, to ensure we know where we're at as we engage today. So last week, Jesus is entering Jerusalem, uh, the hub of Israel's religious and the capital of the nation. Uh, Jesus is entering Jerusalem for a festival. And on his way in, he goes to this area uh, by the Sheep Gate where there's some pools with a little bit of shade, a little bit of cover, uh, where people with disabilities, where people who don't have any place else to go would lay by this pool. And Jesus, uh, in the most unlikely of places, uh, comes across a man who had been paralyzed for the last 38, 39 years, something like that. 38 years, this man had been paralyzed. Jesus asks the man a curious question, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? And the man looks around at all the obstacles in life. You see, he's laying next to a pool that people believed when the waters would stir, the first one into the water would be healed of whatever their ailments were. The man looks away from Jesus, his creator, his healer, to the waters, and he says, yeah, but how would I even get into the waters to receive healing? I mean, look at all these people around me. No one's going to put me in instead of getting in before me in the first place. He looks to all the obstacles in life. But Jesus ends up healing the man, and he says to the man, now get up, take your mat, and walk away. You won't be coming back to sleep in this place any longer. But the chaos, Jesus has just kind of kicked the hornet's nest uh, because the chaos that ensues revolves around Sabbath. You see, this was a Sabbath day in which they were to do no work. The Pharisees see a man carrying his mat, which is illegal on, the, on, on Sabbath, uh, and the Pharisees realize that it's Jesus that has been breaking Sabbath law. As I was thinking about this story, the, what we read yesterday and what we're, last week and what we're talking about this week, I couldn't help but think of a documentary that I watched this last week. And it was a documentary about the Arctic and Alaska. And it was, part of it was talking about icebergs. And icebergs are just fi- fascinating to me. These large chunks of fresh water that's been frozen into these glaciers and the, the parts of it fall off and they're floating in the sea. And what a few fun facts about icebergs. They're they're nine tenths the density of water, which means that only about ten percent of the iceberg is actually visible above water. And about ninety percent of the iceberg is usually below water. And so this picture is just amazing to me. What you see on top, if I, if we were out there on a boat, we would just see this top a little bit, thus the expression, the tip of the iceberg. And then below you have this mass of ice going down and out and all these intricate um, curves and shapes that you see under the water. And as I was thinking about this story of the healing at the pool and, and, and the conversation that comes out of it, It's interesting how the Pharisees were so fixated on this one little bit, the fact that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, that they're going to miss the big picture. They're going to miss most of the iceberg. The fact that this man who had been, who had been paralyzed was healed. 
and could now walk. The fact that they were speaking to Jesus, the Messiah, who had come to bring healing and new life. And so as we continue in John 5, we're going to be looking at Jesus's response to the religious teachers and and how he presents his defense. All right, let's read. Uh, We're in John chapter 5, beginning verse 16. Uh, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Uh, In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even, uh, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So we pause for just a moment to say, as Sarah was describing uh, with the iceberg, what in the world's going on here? A man who couldn't walk can now walk. He's in the temple for the first time in 38 years, celebrating and rejoicing and worshiping God. And the Pharisees we find so hung up on the minutiae that they can't celebrate in this moment. The Pharisees were the religious rulers of Israel in this time, and um, they uh, were both powerful and corrupt. Uh, See, uh, they cared so much more about creating and establishing and punishing based on the laws that they had created. They cared so much more about the law than they did about God and, and the work that God was doing in Israel and intended to be doing through Israel in the world. They had entirely lost sight of their purpose. And so they begin persecuting Jesus, who's breaking their laws, breaking the laws that they had come up with to kind of protect, to shelter Sabbath. Um, I was reading about some of these ridiculous laws. Um, uh, did you know that uh, on, on Sabbath, um, it was recommended that you not look in a mirror because you might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it? Like, this is one of their teachings on Sabbath, right? You know, I, I'd have to do a lot of work this morning <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if that were the case yeah. for me. Uh, a but lot I, of work. I like on... to call them my glitter. Okay. It's the glitter in my hair. That's <laughs> lovely. <laughs> I love it. So at any rate, the Pharisees entirely lost sight of the purpose of Sabbath. It was to rest in God. And instead, there's all these laws and minutiae that get in the way of, God was, of what God was trying to do with it. You know, we've been uh, talking about Sabbath quite a bit off and on in our Journey Together group, uh, a ladies group that gets together on Wednesday, and, and trying to understand what is the Sabbath and what was its intended purpose and how today do we practice Sabbath and what does that look like. And Sabbath was this beautiful practice instituted by God with a variety of purposes, It was a regular day, a weekly day of rest for the people. And God instituted the Sabbath right after the Israelites were brought out of Egypt. And so they had been enslaved for 400 years with no rest, no days off. They were just to work to the bone constantly. So this this idea of rest was a fairly foreign concept to them. And so as God is is organizing the people of Israel, he institutes this, this Sabbath and I love the way God did that, did that because he also equalizes everyone. He says it's a day off for everyone. Everyone is to cease working. Um, those who have a whole lot and those who don't have a whole lot. Everyone is to cease working and cr- 
create this space and opportunity both to worship God and to spend time together in community. And so part of me understands why the religious leaders took, religious leaders took Sabbath seriously. Like it, it was this beautiful, important thing, but they took it to an extreme with all these laws, so many laws that they added in addition um, to it, to, to make sure no one accidentally broke the, the Sabbath. And so it, it had turned into, for them, the Sabbath had turned into this legalistic list of here are the do's and here are the don'ts. And, and be sure you, you stick to this list. And because of that, they were missing God's intended purpose of rest and worship and community. So these Pharisees are accusing Jesus in this moment of breaking Sabbath law. And Jesus' response to them is, my dad works on the Sabbath. Why wouldn't I? Okay? Uh, it, it's a quirky, uh, strange... Did that settle them? Did no, no, this did, did not no. settle them at all. In fact, it makes it so much worse. God, who instituted Sabbath for his people, Jesus is claiming is his father and is claiming works on the Sabbath. I think a big question here is what constitutes work? What will we define as work, right? I think that's where the Pharisees and Jesus are coming at this from very different places. You see, God is always about bringing healing and and, and reconciliation in this world. He is always about that. It is in his nature. He is a relational God who invites humanity to walk with him, and he is continually inviting humanity to be near him. So Jesus sees a man who's who can't stand, who can't walk, and he sees that man, and he cares for that person. He says, get up and walk and come to the temple and experience a new kind of rest and joy and worship on this Sabbath day. To Jesus, that seems incredibly logical. God is always about healing, always about reconciliation, always about invitation. And in juxtaposition, the other side is the position of these Pharisees saying, no, but we have all these laws that you have to follow. What constitutes work? What constitutes work? And also the fact that Jesus called God his father. That really, um, that really upset the religious leaders and because it was making himself equal to God. And so I want to just pause just a moment and talk about the Trinity, talk about this triune God that we worship. Well, often you'll often hear the phrase three in one, that there's one Godhead and three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I just want to say right off the bat, this is a beautiful concept. It's beautiful and it's also mysterious because we can't fully understand what God is like. What we do know is that God is a God of love and that God exists in relationship, exists in community. And so you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and somehow they're three and also one. That there's this one God that lives in community. And so Jesus is going to refer to God quite a bit using this metaphor of God, my father. And, and I love this metaphor. Just if you think about a parent-child relationship, a healthy, good parent-child relationship, it's going to be a really close-knit relationship, right? And so the purpose of this is Jesus is describing his close relationship between between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. 
And that he specifically says in here, in, in John chapter 5, that Jesus will only do what God does. God the Father does. That God the Father and God the Son are acting in unison. Now here in John chapter 5, it doesn't specifically mention the Holy Spirit. There are many other places in Scripture where we also know of God, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God who is dwelling within us and among us, teaching us and guiding us and reminding us of Jesus's words. And so I I love this idea of a God who exists in community where there is equality and there's mutuality and there is love. You know, so much of Christian faith and what the church is and how it ought to operate should be born of that kind of understanding, a God who exists in community, a God that invites people into community, uh, and and well done. I remember um, uh, the, the Trinity is a hard subject to speak to for a number of reasons. First of all, it's beyond our imagination and understanding, um, but I remember in a master's program, I found out uh, as, as we were studying on this uh, subject um, that just about every illustration and conversation I'd ever had about the Trinity uh, was uh, stepping on the toes of some sort of heresy, you know, that, that's been brought up uh, in, in the church in the past. It's a really complex subject, but so important to our understanding. If this is who God is, relational and loving exists in community, then this is what we are invited to. This is a central message of hope amongst Jesus' followers. Let's continue in the text. So we have this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, and, and the two primary conflicts are Jesus is breaking Sabbath law, and secondly, Jesus Jesus is claiming to be equal with God. Now, the Pharisees are passing judgment on him immediately. They know we got to get rid of this guy. He has committed offenses against our law, and he is claiming uh, completely heretical things, and therefore we must get rid of him. So they are in pursuit now of having Jesus executed. In verse 22, though, as we continue in chapter 5 here, Jesus turns the conversation of judgment back on them. He says, uh, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, saying this, you who have judged me wrongly, you who are working to have me executed in this moment, uh, understand that it is in fact me that has authority to pass judgment on you. I'm, I'm guessing that didn't go over well either. They didn't love that, <laughs> didn't love that part. <laughs> so Jesus will continue to address the religious leaders who are, who are opposing him because they think he's broken Mosaic law. He will continue to defend himself and respond with this um, legal language, um, which made sense to them in, in, in the first century court system. And so he's building a case saying that, yes, I do have authority to heal on the Sabbath, and I do have authority to say that the things that I'm saying. He's using the rhetoric and the reasoning that made sense in the first century Jewish court system. And, and one of the things that was really important, similar to today, is that a person's testimony for themselves wasn't valid in court. So if you were going to go to court and, and make a claim, you had to have a witness, someone else come to testify that what you were saying was true. 
So in verse 31, Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Um, there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified about the truth. So John, the Baptist, has testified about who Jesus is. Continuing in verse 36, uh, I have testimony weightier, though, than that of John. Um, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. So Jesus is claiming in, in legal terms, John testified for me. He spoke to who I was to you. And secondly, both God has spoken uh, through his word and is proving through my actions. God is testifying on my behalf as well. And yeah, he's saying, I have the testimony needed in John, but there's even a weightier testimony, and that is of God. And my miracles, the things that I'm doing, such as the healing of this man, prove that I am sent by God and that God is testifying in my favor. So again, he's just trying to lay out his case demonstrate his authority to heal and to say these things. Mm -hmm. Last in this legal conversation, but in verse 45, um, Jesus is speaking not only of his authority to actually judge them, but he's saying you are condemned even by your own standards, by your own laws. In verse 45, um, but do you think, um, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Jesus is saying here, the law was given to Israel through Moses, and he's saying you are condemned even under that law. He says the law spoke of me. The Old Testament scriptures and Moses spoke of me, and you are condemned by the very fact that you don't believe the law, the testimony, the prophets, from which... Uh, uh, you have built all of your laws and systems. I got a little bit lost in my point. Go ahead, sir. But Jesus came to establish a new covenant. And so I want to talk about that. So you have the old covenant in, from the Old Testament, and then you have the new covenant that instituted by Jesus. Now let's define that word a little bit because when in today's language, when we hear the word covenants, we usually think um, negatively about like HOA covenants. <laughs> like, That's what I was thinking about, you, you HOA, can't, you those can't, letters. I don't know. You can't paint your door mustard yellow. <laughs> Guess what I'm doing this week? I'm painting my door mustard yellow. <laughs> Thankfully, that is not in our covenants. Um, but often, you know, the covenants of an HOA are just kind of annoying. Um, but that's not what it's referring to here. So covenant in scripture, covenant language. A covenant is a binding close relationship, a partnership between two parties. And so in the Old Testament, we read of God... Um, the first covenant between God and Abraham and God in Genesis chapter 12, you can read about that. will say, Abraham, I will be your God. You will be my, you and your descendants will be my people and I will bless all nations through you. And as we read the old Testament, this, this covenant will be, uh, reestablished over and over with the people of Israel. It'll be reestablished with Moses at Mount Sinai after the Israelites come out of Egypt and, and God will reestablish this covenant and also give them the law of Moses. And then it will be reestablished again um, in king, with King David, king of Israel. And 
as it's reestablished that time, God will also make an additional promise. And he'll promise that there will be a king from the line of David that will live forever. And in the prophets, you'll see prophecies of this, this servant king, the suffering king that will live forever. And then you come to the New Testament and enters Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, this king from the line of David, who is coming to reestablish the covenant, but it's going to be a new covenant. It'll be a covenant between God and humanity, a covenant of grace. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who uh, are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. That Jesus was to be the mediator of this new covenant and that it would be different from the first covenant and that it would free people from sin. That Jesus would die as a ransom once and for all, for all the sins committed. And that Jesus would offer this promised eternal inheritance. So whereas the first covenant uh, with the law highlighted where people fell short in their relationship with God, the new covenant mediated by Jesus offers a way to move forward in, in freedom from sin, move forward in grace, and move forward with the promise of a new and eternal life. You know, the problem is human nature, as seen, as demonstrated by the Pharisees in this text. Uh, no one could perfectly uphold the law. They keep creating more and more rules and more and more laws to try to insulate people from getting close to and accidentally breaking a law, but it just wasn't working. It was becoming more and more convoluted, more and more of a burden on the lives of people. And this idea of new covenant found in Jesus is an invitation to new life. It's a covenant of grace and an invitation into a new way of being. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4, describes it in this way, um, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that anyone can boast, for we are God's handiwork." created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Such rich, beautiful, poetic language. Go back and spend some time this week, if you can, in Ephesians chapter 2. It's beautiful, this new covenant of grace and mercy. I don't know if you've ever uh, had the idea or had a conversation about why is it that God seems so angry and spiteful in the Old Testament, then comes Jesus and it seems so different. But the testimony here of the author of Ephesians and Jesus' own testimony about himself is starkly different than that, quite different than that. That it is God out of his love that self-sacrifices, that sends Jesus, or if we think again about this triune theology, God would self-sacrifice for the sake of humanity. He would pay the price of broken covenant that humanity might be invited back into his presence. 
Uh, What Ephesians describes is a God of incredible, rich love for humanity. Jesus describes and lives out that love as he walks on earth. And ultimately, the promise of this new covenant and the invitation of God is to new life in Jesus. To To be made alive with Jesus. I love that language, and it's so clear throughout Scripture that this is a gift of God, that this is a gift that is by grace that we receive this new life. It's not something that we can earn or something that we can purchase or even create for ourselves, that this is something that can only be received through Jesus. You know, it's, it's easy to to kind of think badly of the Pharisees and the religious leaders and say, they just really missed the point on that. They really had their legalistic viewpoint and, and it's easy to just kind of, which is all true. It's all true, but it, it's easy to kind of think a little bit that wouldn't happen right with, with me. Mm-hmm. And yet when I think about this, I think how easy it is for us to create our own lists. Our list probably won't look like that of the religious leaders. They probably won't have to do with Sabbath law. But how easy it is for us to think that um, we must do these things or be this way in order to be good enough for God, in order to, to be able to be worthy of salvation, of this new life found in Jesus. And that is not the case, friends. It is a free gift, a gift given freely by God, by grace. We're made alive by grace and grace alone. And what is just amazing to me when I think about this is that this is a God who sees us, all of us, and all of our different parts. So he sees the beautiful parts in us, And he sees the broken parts in us. He sees the godly parts and the ungodly parts in us. And God's overflowing, endless love just continually invites us to come to God and to accept this gift of new life. And when we, in humility, surrender to God's love, when we finally say yes and we, our posture, instead of one of, of working really hard and gritting our teeth and, and, and trying to do it on our own, when our posture is more open and receptive, then we can receive this gift of new life in Jesus. And the Spirit of God dwells within us, dwells among us to heal us and restore us and to make us whole. And this new life, I love the Ephesians passage, is characterized by the incomparable riches of God's grace expressed in his kindness through Jesus. And this offer extended to all people. As we finish out in John chapter 5, I'll be in verse 39. Um, but Jesus speaks to this kind of juxtaposition, right? It is an invitation to all people. And correct me if I'm wrong, but as I read this, I hear compassion in his voice for the Pharisees that are trying to kill him. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. I hear compassion in those. You're pleading with them. Yeah. It's like, would you just come and receive this good gift that I offer? And I wonder if that same invitation speaks to some of us here today. 
would you just come and receive life from me? We find ourselves bogged down in the chaos or the hurt of life. We find ourselves so busy we don't even know how to sit down and be still. And Jesus, in a compassionate tone, is saying, will you just come to me and receive life? I think it's human nature to be creatures of habit and to be comfortable in the familiar, even if the familiar may not be what's best for us. And in this story, we see the Pharisees clinging to the old when the new stands before them. And I can relate to that feeling, that I want to just cling to whatever um, whatever understanding or habits or lifestyle, whatever it may be that God is trying to speak to me about. Sometimes I just cling to what's familiar instead of being open to the new understanding and the new pathways that God is leading me towards. Jesus speaks of this old and new. You can read it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three Gospels. John doesn't record this exact um, story, but uh, Jesus speaks of the idea of pouring uh, new wine into old wineskins. He draws this illustration. If you pour new wine into an old wineskin uh, that can't expand anymore, right, then uh, it will burst and it will all go to waste. And I find in this, um, I, I just heard this in a different light in the last couple of weeks as I was thinking about this illustration of Jesus. He's speaking of this pharisaical system. He's speaking of this old system, and he's saying, it cannot contain me. It does not have room in it for grace, the kind of grace and the kind of love I desire to pour out on humanity, and it will burst. And I see in this conflict that Jesus is having with the Pharisees, they have no capacity to understand the kind of grace and love that this new covenant would have in it. I think at times there's this misconception in the church today, and and I'm speaking about the church at large, that if I have this deep, deep conviction of faith, then my understanding about that can't change. Like if I really believe what I believe, then I can't change anything about that belief. And I'm hoping this this passage and this conversation can free us a bit from that type of thinking because we can still have deep convictions and still have the flexibility and the openness and the curiosity to explore deeper, more complex understandings that God wants to give us. Those aren't mutually exclusive. Just because we don't have all the the right understanding doesn't mean that that we have to shut everything out like we we have to be able to explore and to ask questions to create room within our conversation conversations within the church for new understanding and new iterations of faith in our neighborhood we have to be able to learn and to explore and to listen to the spirit as god speaks to us That is rich. And there's a rich invitation in the text today. It is to new life found in Jesus. Not to live out of obligation to earn our own salvation, but instead to live as a response to God's love and grace that he has poured out on us. To participate in God's good work and the healing he desires to bring in this world around us. Amen to that.